Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Canada is committed to net zero by 2050, and to get there, we'll need to reduce our emissions by 40 to 45 percent in the next eight years. The federal government is now setting new goals and setting out how it plans to achieve them. And days ago, a group of academics, climate change activists, and clean energy entrepreneurs delivered their recommendations. That's important because the government asked them not only for advice, but to make that advice public. And here's part of what they say. It's time for transformative change. That includes electrifying our homes, buildings, and transportation systems. So we thought it was time to hear once again from Saul Griffith. He's an Australian engineer and inventor. In his recent book, he lays out a plan to help the world achieve that very goal. A few months ago, he told us it's time to, in his words, electrify everything. Welcome to What on Earth. I'm Laura Lynch. Google the name Saul Griffith, and you'll learn he earned his PhD at MIT. He won a MacArthur Genius Grant in 2007, and he's currently the CEO of The Other Lab and the founder of the nonprofit Rewiring America. But Saul Griffith also grew up in the suburbs of Sydney, Australia, with a mother who was a wildlife artist. He spent his summers hiding, crouched, trying to get photographs of endangered species and watching sea turtles nest on islands on the edge of the Pacific. And it was there that Griffith developed a deep, abiding love for the world's flora and fauna. Then there was his teenage dream that revealed his interest in combining business with the conservation of the environment. My oldest friends still rib me for trying to convince them that we should start a company to make cardboard biodegradable coffins when I was about 18 <laughs> or 19. So I think uh, I've, I've been interested for a long time. Now he's taking on one of the biggest challenges of our time, climate change. In fact, Saul Griffith argues our failure to act on the climate crisis really comes down to a lack of imagination, a failure to convince ourselves that fixing climate change is going to be great. We spoke with him last fall about his book, Electrify, an optimist playbook for our clean energy future. Saul Griffith, hello. Hello. You have been thinking about energy for a very long time, and early in your book, you tell this story about the time you measured every use of energy in your life. Tell me what that involved. I have a wonderful wife. I should, I should <laughs> start there. It involved a wonderful and tolerant wife. I actually weighed everything that I owned. Um, we monitored our energy bills, electricity, natural gas, and all of our gasoline that we purchased for our cars. And so it was not only the energy that we use day to day, but it was also the energy of milk in our life, the amount of energy in the newspapers in our life, et cetera, et cetera. So it was pretty comprehensive. And I think it got frustrating for my wife when I suggested that she shouldn't 
have a subscription to a seven day a week newspaper <laughs> <laughs> and argue, and i and I said because it actually turns out it was tons of newspaper every year and a quite a large amount of energy. And I suggested none, and she suggested, uh, how about just the Sunday newspaper? So we arrived at a compromise. <laughs> I guess that the stakes were pretty high there, weren't they? I think the stakes were very high. That's why I yielded to one day. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that gives people a sense of, of your obsessiveness almost with looking at these kinds of things and looking for ways to solve problems. Now you run a research and design workshop in an old organ factory in San Francisco that focuses on renewable energy. What's What has made you so passionate in this fight against climate change? Well, I think we have a lot to lose. And, you know, I now have children, so I'm passionate because I'd like my eight-year-old daughter and 12-year-old son to grow up in a world that is still beautiful and still has some biodiversity and has a tolerable climate. And I think we have, we may lose all of that in the next few decades if we don't play our cards right as a species. And so I think it, it is urgent and it is the most pressing and existential problem of our time. The workshop is called Other Lab. Can you tell me what you're working on there at the moment? Uh, we have a project in solar-powered micromobility, which is pretty cool. It's a self-powering uh, scooter. And we have a project in isothermal compression, which is a nerdy way of making it more efficient to compress gases, which is going to be very important for compressing carbon dioxide and hydrogen and other gases. We have a nascent project in batteries that I can't say a lot about, but which is very exciting to me. Um, oh, I can hardly wait to hear more about that. Yeah, we're developing a new category of solar modules and we are developing a thermal storage technology that will help balance the grid and keep people's homes comfortable. A lot of stuff. I, I read uh, one of one of your employees said that it was great fun working there because if you had an idea, then you were the, per you were the person who said, let's try. Uh, I love that employee. They get employee of the month for being so polite. <laughs> Somebody once described the workshop, and I thought this was great. They were like, so let us get this right. You spent your whole life building the kindergarten that you wanted to go to. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very, it's very creative. We have all the tools, um, all the crayons. But it's also got a very serious side. And, and so let's get to the, the issue of climate change. You're, in your mind, electrification is the solution. So lay it out. What, what do you think that you, me, and everyone else needs to do in the coming years? So the majority of the climate change problem is energy. It's 80 or 90%, depending if you're looking globally or just at the US, of the emissions problem. And we've still got people who are advocating for enormous amounts of carbon sequestration on fossil fuels and, and other systems. But if you step back and you look at the entire energy ecosystem, and we actually have done that work individually and then in partnership with the Department of Energy. If you think about electrifying all of the end uses of the things we do, so electrifying our vehicles, electrifying the loads in our homes, electrifying our industry, and then generating all of that electricity with clean energy, we actually, without really changing the fabric or the structure of our lives, reduce the amount of energy we need in the US economy, for example, by more than half. So we, we've had a narrative since 1970 about efficiency because the very first time we had an energy crisis, we didn't even have a Department of Energy. So the oil crisis landed on Nixon's desk. And when they looked at the problem and what might be the solution in 1973, 
because it was a supply side problem, meaning there was 15% of America's energy supply was cut off. They thought, well, if we could be 15% more efficient in our vehicles and 15% more efficient in our appliances, then we won't need that energy. And that gave us the first energy policies, which were the cafe fuel standards, which dictate the efficiency of the world's automobiles and Energy Star appliances, which dictate the efficiency of our appliances. That efficiency narrative was pretty useful and it kept a lid on you know, explosive energy growth consumption because machines got more and more efficient. But you can't efficient your way to zero. Otherwise, the petrol-powered car literally doesn't move. So electrification, it turns out, is the efficiency we were always looking for. And that's why I think we just need to very clearly focus our mind on that task. Okay. What is the prescription for a homeowner or a household that that you see um, them needing to tackle in the coming years? Uh, You just need to change the infrastructure of your life. There are about six or seven decisions that a homeowner or a household makes, and they make them roughly every 10 years. And it's what are the cars in their driveway? What is the heating system in their basement? What heats their water? What type of laundry dryer they have and what appliances they have in the kitchen and at the rate that these things get replaced because water heaters fail every 12 or 15 years furnaces every 20 years kitchens get replaced every 12 to 15 years we need to make sure that we replace the natural gas water heater with a heat pump water heater replace the natural gas or fuel oil furnace with a heat pump replace the probably natural gas maybe propane kitchen appliances with hopefully electric induction and then for extra credit put as much solar as we can on the roof and a battery in the garage to make the best use of that solar. That sounds very very expensive so how can people afford that particularly people who live at or below the poverty line? Firstly it's not going to be expensive over the lifetime of all of these things they will save energy. And we did this study in the US last year, showing that by about 2025, the average American household could be saving two and a half thousand dollars a year on their energy bills. So it can save you money. But the problem that you point out is that the upfront cost is high. So I think we we have to grapple with the fact that for the bottom 50% of households on the income scale, achieving that is going to be difficult. So we actually, I think we need to be thinking about government and private-public partnerships and other ways that help finance every household to go on this journey. Otherwise, it's going to become a divisive cultural issue that solving climate change is a game only for the rich. I guess climate change is also in itself a divisive issue among the haves and the have-nots, in and of itself. Yes, absolutely. You're you're talking about 120 million homes in in the United States, in your homeland, Australia, 10 million households. How can all of this happen and happen in the timeline that you want it to? So here's the reality. There's a concept called committed emissions in climate field, which means the emissions of a machine that already exists. So if you bought a petrol car or a gasoline-powered car last year, it will emit until over the 20 years of its life. If you bought a natural gas power plant last year, it will emit for the rest of its life. If we allow the machines that already exist on the planet today to live out their natural lives, that'll take us to about 1.8 degrees Celsius of global warming. 
this is why people advocate for retiring the coal plants and the heaviest emitters sooner, which is a good idea. Maybe that brings us down to 1.6 or 1.7. But what it really means is intellectually we now need to as quickly as possible get to the point that the next time anyone buys any of these machines that use fossil fuels, they buy the electric alternative. And that's how, quite honestly, we do as good as well as we can in keeping a lid on climate change. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Saul Griffith, inventor, MacArthur Genius Grant winner, and author of Electrify. We first spoke to Griffith last October. Saul Griffith, if all of the households in America did as you're suggesting, the United States would need more than three times the electricity it currently produces. Tell me where it's going to come from. The energy will come from predominantly wind and solar. We'll certainly we'll keep using the hydroelectricity that's already on the grid. There's a little bit of energy will come from biofuels. Uh, a little bit of energy will come from geothermal. And I think practically and pragmatically, some will come from nuclear. And now it's just a sort of thumb wrestling game to pick the numbers. But I think if you were a betting person, you'd say about 40% solar, about 40% wind, and the 20% will be made up by everything else. One of the concerns about renewable energy is that sources such as solar and wind can't provide stable, reliable source of power. How can the United States ensure renewable energy is consistent and secure enough that people and businesses can rely on it year-round? We're going to have batteries everywhere in the system. So the collective batteries in our vehicles is, is going to be a huge amount of storage. Uh, we can also use the thermal systems in our home, namely our hot water heaters and our heating systems, to also store yesterday's or, or the day before's energy and give it to us when we want it. So we'll have an enormous amount of storage. We will also... Does that storage that exists right now? No. You know, we've electrified 1% of the vehicles. <laughs> uh, once you electrify all of the vehicles, their collective battery could run the whole country for three or four days. Are you imagining a, a, a United States where car batteries are powering homes as well as just running the car? Not a huge amount, but a little bit, and they will help balance the grid. We'll also have storage in pumped hydro. We'll also have storage in terms of batteries on the grid, batteries on the distribution networks. But really, the all of those batteries will help the sort of the 24-hour balancing problem and the seven-day balancing problem. But I think for the how do you balance summer and winter, Honestly, we will use a couple of techniques. One of them will be oversupply. So the environmentalist movement comes from a place of scarcity, not abundance. And so we've always imagined just barely getting to 100% renewables. But I think we need to get to 120 or 130% because then we're designing for the winter minimum in production, and which also unfortunately coincides with the maximum energy use in the year because that's when everyone heats their homes. But if we have oversupply, you can meet that. 
and we will also use transmission geographically from east to west and north to south and the more generation sources you hook up over a larger geographic area just through the law of averages helps to balance all of this production which means reworking the grid entirely i would think not as entirely as you think it it'll be you know upgrading a lot of the transmission infrastructure but connecting things that aren't yet connected and making sure that we write the rules of the road so that we can transmit over long distances. It's interesting because uh, we've done a program before on, on the grid in Canada and re- and the, the idea that, that Canada needs to rework its grid to provide um, surplus electricity in the have hydro provinces to the non-have hydro, so more of an east-to-west grid than a north-south because Canada exports so much to the United States. So this this sounds like more than a United States project that you're talking about. Certainly, it will be easier for everyone. The more you electrify everything, the easier it is to electrify everything else is a, sort of an easy statement. And certainly, Canada or U.S. transmission would make an enormous difference using Canadian hydro in the lulls and the you know southern U.S. solar in Canada during the day would make it Canada's job tremendously easier. And so the more we link across countries, the more we succeed. And that's already, there's absolutely no way most of the European countries could solve this problem within their own geographic boundaries. You'd need Norwegian hydro to balance the Swedish grid and and vice versa. So by necessity, this means more cooperation and more interstate and internation connections. So can we talk about batteries a little bit more? Because what you're suggesting sounds like it needs a lot more batteries than we have now. And to build all those batteries, we need minerals. And one of those minerals uh, is lithium. And I'm asking about lithium because earlier this year, Steve Matthias, uh, the chief of the Long Point First Nation in Quebec, was a guest on this show. And his community actually opposes lithium exploration near its traditional hunting and fishing grounds by an Australian company called Siona. And we talked to him about the push to electrify with batteries. I just want you to hear what he had to say. That remains to be proven yet, you know, what the environmental impact and the impact on our traditional way of life compared to those gas emissions that they claim that it's better for the planet. You know, we've made a lot of sacrifices here in, in my community. My community was uh, flooded to different occasions. And we were told, you know, it was for the betterment, you know, to have clean energy, hydro, electricity. And it's always later, later in our case, and later never comes. So you're happy to let the lithium just stay in the ground? I'm okay with it. I think for the benefit of my people and for a traditional way of life, because we really depend on that. If that's taken away from us, that's a huge sacrifice. There's some sacrifices that we're not willing to make based on their past experience. Now, as someone who grew up with a wonder for the natural world, I'm wondering how you square what you envision with what Chief Steve Matthias just said. I think everyone should be concerned about exactly the issues he's concerned about, but it's almost like we need a moral calculator on on this issue. You know, if I was designing the energy system that I would tolerate living with, we'd all use substantially less energy and walk more. But I, I, I think... 50 years of the environmentalist movement arguing for that hasn't made much traction with the general populace. So I think we're going to certainly use more energy than is my preference. So this is a grand compromise that we're all negotiating with each other and with our ecosystems. 
But I think a point that's worth mentioning is there's many places to get the lithium from. We need to do mining for a lot of the things that are we see as necessities in our life. And we should compare the lithium needs with the existing state of play. So if you're an average American or an average Canadian today, you consume personally about six tons or 6,000 kilograms of fossil fuels every year that are burned once and then become carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And there's huge environmental damage from finding, mining, refining, and transporting that 6,000 kilograms of fossil fuels. If we took that model we talked about earlier, about 40% of the energy will come from solar and 40% will come from wind and we'll store about half of it in batteries to make sure that there's that you it's reliable 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You'll need about 50 kilograms of solar per person per year, 50 kilograms of wind power per person per year. That's because they only last 25 or 30 years, then you need to replace them. And you'll need about 50 to 100 kilograms of batteries per person per year. The good news, unlike the fossil fuels that we burn once and go into the atmosphere, we are developing the methods to, at very high rates, recycle the solar systems, recycle the wind turbines, and we should be able to recycle the batteries and get much closer to a circular economy, which is far less damaging on the ecosystems of the world. What is the role of government in all of this? Do you see the current Biden administration achieving any of what you are advocating? I have to choose my words carefully. I work closely with the climate team in the in the White House. I think they're extraordinary individuals and they have the right goals. They came out and proposed 50% emission reductions by 2030 as their goal, which I think is in line with the climate science and the level of aggressiveness we need. So I applaud them for it. The problem is that the, the reconciliation bill and the other bills that are coming through the Senate negotiations at the moment don't in any way get us to that 30% reduction by 2050. So the political process is, is absolutely not up to the task of the level of ambition of the White House. Real um, politics, right? Getting in the way. Real politics. I, I actually think that it's all about to change. We've just uh, run a campaign in Australia. So you can really... Australian has had what they call the Australian rooftop solar miracle, which through eliminating government red tape, which is a pretty popular set of policies, they made installing solar on Australian rooftops so cheap that it's installed at under $1 a watt, which translate to a delivered cost of electricity of five or six cents a kilowatt hour, which is cheaper than electricity anywhere in the world. So the cheapest electricity in the world is the solar on your rooftop in Australia. So Australian households are taking it up in huge numbers, 20% across the country, 50% of households in some states. And now they're realizing that it's so cheap, they're using it to convert their heating systems to electric. They're converting to electric cars. And you know the, the math for an electric car is pretty simple. Driving an electric car in Australia on solar made on your rooftop will cost you one or two cents per kilometre travelled, whereas if you're in the same size petrol or diesel car, it'll cost you 15 to 20 cents per kilometre. So I think in that case, the market and the technology has got us to a point where everyone's going to gravitate over here to this thing that's going to save them every time they're doing their activities. And that's where those $5,000 a year in savings come from. Because that technology is nearly there in a whole bunch of countries, I think a lot of the politics will change. 
the government, I think, really needs to make sure that the regulations, you know, we've got 100 years of regulations written for a fossil fueled world, and a lot of them are in conflict with making the transition as cheap as possible. So we need to clean up the regulations to make sure that the transition is cheap and economic as possible. The government will have to help finance a lot of these projects because of the long capital times. And I think that's really the government role. You're making Australia sound like a star on on the world stage when it comes to uh, climate change and fighting it. Well, Australia is amazing, and I think this is true all over the world. The Australian federal government is a pariah and looks like a petrostate. And, you know, our peer nations are, are Saudi Arabia and Russia and Venezuela and, you know, maybe Canada. Um, Thanks. To, 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 throw, <laughs> to, to throw you under the same bus. But at the same time, at the state level, you could take the best policy in every state in Australia and glue the bits and pieces together and you would have an incredible and nearly ideal climate policy for the whole country that achieves this transition in a very timely manner. And the federal government thinks about, you know, macroeconomics and the export balance, and they have driven a campaign of fear about what we have to lose. But I think we're starting to see the the campaign of optimism and what we have to win instead of what we have to lose. And what we have to win is saving $40 billion a year in Australia's households and developing lithium for export using Australian green electricity to make steel, green steel and green uh, aluminum for the world. There's a huge amount to win. I haven't done the details for the Canadian economy, but I'm sure with some creativity and imagination, you would figure out that maybe this is a great thing for Canada to transition. The subtitle of the book is An Optimist's Playbook for Our Clean Energy Futures. So where does your optimism come from? I think we're one political cycle away from where the technology and the economics works everywhere and then you'll start to, then these governments will yield because the people will demand it. So batteries are falling in price so quickly, solar is still falling in price so quickly. At that point, political parties from both sides of the aisle in all countries will be trying to gravitate towards this more economic, better for our children, better for our health solution. I just think politicians have egos too, and I don't think they know how to save face from the positions they've held for the last few decades. And we don't have enough you know, of that Churchillian leadership that could stand up and make that speech. So I think we're, we're one set of politicians away from one set of elections away from having the ambition that's required. Now, sadly, that is sad because we really only have this decade to make a huge dent and we're going to likely be a lot slower in the first half of that decade than we needed to be. But you write in the book that solving climate change should be at least as good as carrots and <laughs> at best ice cream. Maybe what you should do is get the politicians to try your flavor of ice cream. <laughs> Well, yes, the, yeah, that's what we have been doing and with quite a lot of success in the US. And, and last week we launched Rewiring Australia and we launched a report about the $5,000 savings that will occur to every household if we do this as a national project. And it was enormously well received from political parties on both sides and by the media there. So I think that is starting to happen. There is so much more that you and I could talk about. There's a lot more in your book including um, numerous charts for those who can grapple with those kinds of things. I thank you so much for your time, though. Absolutely. Thank you. And that again was Saul Griffith.
from last fall. And that is it for us this week. Thanks to the team who helped put it all together. Producer Molly Siegel, associate producer Rachel Sanders, who really stepped it up when we needed her this week. Also helping out, associate producers Serena Renner and Devin Nguyen. Our sound engineer is Matthias Wolfson. Thanks for listening. I'm Laura Lynch. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.